The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. How to eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. In the 1970s, there was one small but mighty animal rights group in Kansas City where I lived. One night before the meeting, somebody said, I'll bet every animal lover in town is here. And a feisty septuagenarian responded, I don't love animals. I hate cruelty. That comment has stayed with me to this day. Now, I do love animals. They make me happy. I enjoy their company. I'm fascinated by who they are, by how they live. But for us to make their world better, and ours too, loathing cruelty can be good enough. Hi. I'm your host, Victoria Moran, and if you visit MainStreetVegan.net, you can learn more about my work. You can sign up for our occasional newsy mailings and receive your free e-guide, Three Steps to Rockin' a Vegan Lifestyle. And in addition, we've got a Facebook group just for people who listen to this program. It is the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group, and we'd love to see you there, especially this week because we're doing giveaways brand new copies of both of our guests' books. So we'll be offering the 10th anniversary edition of Striking at the Roots by Mark Hawthorne, who'll be joining us at the half hour, and we'll be giving a copy of The Cow with Ear Tag number 1389 by Catherine Gillespie, our first guest. To win one of these books, we are looking for your fabulous meme. A vegan meme in general or a meme about why you like the Main Street Vegan podcast. So join up on Facebook if you haven't already and send us your memes and we will announce the winners on next week's show. Sounds like fun, right? I don't know how to make memes, but if I did, I'd sure want one of these books. And right now I have a wonderful author and a wonderful humanitarian to whom to introduce you. And she is Catherine Gillespie. Her book is about the lives of cows in the U.S. dairy industry. She has a Ph.D. in geography and researches and writes about the lives of animals in spaces of human use. 
She has been vegan for a decade. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. It is absolutely wonderful to have you here. So listeners, if you have not yet seen this book, The Cow with Ear Tag, number 1389, just go look at it. As soon as you are no longer on the treadmill or whatever you're doing while you listen to this program, get yourself to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or somewhere and just really drink in this cover image. It's a beautiful photograph by Joanne MacArthur, the inimitable animal photographer. And this cow's face really says it all about why a lot of us are vegan and why so many of us care. So Catherine, tell us your story. How did your veganism uh, connect with your PhD-ness? Well, they actually came along together. Um, I started grad school in 2008 um, in geography, and I wanted to start, um, I was interested at the time in sort of alternative food systems, and I wanted to do a project. Um, for my master's thesis on um, sort of parking strip gardens and growing food in urban spaces. And um, the first quarter I was in grad school at University of Washington here in Seattle, I met a professor, um, Maria Elena Garcia, who's still at the University of Washington. And she was um, working in a field called animal studies, which I'd never heard of before. Um, And we started sort of talking and doing some readings together um, on human animal relationships in the food system. Um, and one of the books we read actually that um, that really shifted my perspective was um, was The Ethics of What We Eat by um, Peter Singer and Jim Mason. And um, that at the time, um, you know, really got me thinking. I'd never, yeah, I'd thought about animals in the food system. We had backyard chickens actually at the time and um, raising these, these chickens um, from chicks uh, actually had earlier caused us to stop eating chickens because we made the connection between these, you know, chickens we were living with. Um, And so anyway, just the sort of academic interest in thinking about animals in the food system um, and the, uh, and the sort of, you know, everyday, you know, living with um, so-called, you know, farmed animals um, with these chickens uh, really turned me vegan right away. And so then I, I reconfigured my, um, my academic work to be not so much about urban, you know, agriculture and food systems in cities, but, um, but to be about the, my master's thesis was on um, sort of reconceptualizing this idea of so-called humane slaughter um, in the U.S. And then from there, I got interested in, I realized there was quite a lot of work already in academic circles on slaughter practices and not so much on dairy. And so I did my PhD dissertation on the dairy industry to shed more light on the kind of everyday um, violences of, of dairy production. So I know that in order to have a topic for a PhD um, approved by the institution, you have to talk with people, professors, this has to be approved. Did you get any kind of flack? What sort of pushback was there? Um, initially, when I started my, my master's thesis, I um, I did have some pushback from faculty I was working with, um, mostly just who had not 
sort of thought about human-animal relationships before, didn't think it was geography, um, but, you know, there's actually a, a fairly long history, um, certainly down back to the 90s um, in geography of uh, work that looks explicitly at, at animal you know, animals and sort of human-animal uh, relations um, in in a geographic context, and so there was there were already scholars doing this kind of work um, in the discipline that I could, you know, highlight and to make the case for why this was important. Um, and then certainly beyond geography, there's a huge wealth of of um, research and scholarship that's that's being done and has been for decades. And so that was, that was really helpful in terms of making the case um, at my, you know, at my institution with, um, with the faculty I was working with. And so pretty quickly they were on board and interested. And even though it wasn't anything they really did, um, it was, it was something that they were supportive of. So you're the first person that I've ever spoken with who is a geography expert. When I think about geography, I think about maps and I think I like maps and I also like to know where people are from. <laughs> a lot mm -hmm. of people want to say, what do you do? But I want to know where you live. But beyond yeah. that very elementary understanding, what is it when you actually get into an academic pursuit of geography? Yeah, so so the discipline of geography is um, sort of roughly divided into two halves. One is physical geography, and that's like what you would think of the maps, you know, sort of maps, places, thinking about, you know, uh, the actual sort of geographic layout of the world. Um, and then there's um, the other half of, of sort of what the discipline does is called human geography. Um, and I always think it's sort of funny to fit in that I fit into the human geography side because I'm studying mostly animal geographies. Um, but it, in any case, it's called human geography. And it is much more like any like other social sciences, like anthropology or sociology. It's about, you know, studying um, social sort of social and political relationships, um, but with a particular attention to place and to the sort of places and spaces where these relationships unfold. So it's about how, you know, not only how, um, you know, our relationships shape places themselves, change, um, you know, changes the, change the, the sort of places and spaces around us, but also how the places and spaces shape social relations and interactions. So why you would see, for instance, um, you know, a certain set of social relationships unfolding in a particular place that are different from somewhere else. So animals fit into um, that in terms of, you know, thinking about the relationships between, between humans and animals, the way that, you know, humans use animals in all of these different ways. Um, you know, there's a real uh, spatial aspect to, to those. And so um, I like to joke that you could really study anything in geography because everything happens in place, that uh, it's quite an open discipline. Oh, that's wonderful. So why is academic research into the lives of animals important in our society where we've got such easy access to information already out there? Yeah, I think, um, 
I mean, I think that, that one of the things I think about in terms of academic research is that um, is that sometimes I see when, you know, things are circulating around um, online, I, I see people sort of just, you know, about veganism or about why, um, you know, why animals' lives matter. Um, there's a real um, kind of tendency, you know, among people who aren't already thinking about it to dismiss work um, you know, work that's being done, act like activism or, you know, as, oh, well, that's just, you know, your opinion or, or whatever. Um, and I think that, that there's something about, you know, whether this is good or bad, there, there's some, I, I think, ad additional validity um, to the way that kind of academic research ha um, it has been done in terms of, you know, academic publishing goes through a peer review process where, you know, other experts in the field will, you know, make sure that, that the research that you're doing is um, sort of up to snuff and, uh, and, and, and accurate. And so I think that just in terms of making the case for making the case for why animals lives matter, um, making a case for, for veganism, um, I think it's, you know, sort of great to see more, more academic, um, work that then can be, you know, shared in, in a wider, um, you know, with a wider audience, uh, to, to support the awesome activism that is, you know, going on, um, all around us. Right. It's interesting to me, we talk about veganism sometimes as having, you know, the three-legged stool of the animals, the environment and, and health. And mm -hmm. it almost seems like there, there's another kind of, of three, pronged way to look at it where, where there's activism and there's academia and then there's business and, and entrepreneurship and all these companies that are getting food products and other things out into the world and reminding people that there is a different way to eat and, and a different way to live. So um, it's wonderful. I was just yeah. reading the other day about uh, a university that is going to have a, a vegan studies program and, and even animal studies is so new. You know, you hear it and it's almost like, what, huh? You could actually study that? But vegan yeah. <laughs> studies, I mean, it, it's just stunning. And and yeah. I think when we think about uh, women's studies and cross-cultural studies and some of these other things that I certainly remember when those didn't exist. And, and I think the fact that they do exist have brought those issues more into the forefront with a gravitas that they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, sure. In looking at, at your beautiful book, uh, Katie, one of the things you talk about is the difficulty of accessing farms and, and, and spaces of animal agriculture, how to get the information about the animal lives out when the access is so difficult. So what did you do and what can others do? Yeah, I think that's a really important um, issue today, especially, you know, as we've, uh, as at the, you know, U.S. state level, there, you know, have been all these sort of battles over ag-gag laws and, um, you know, discussions about whether or not, you know, journalists and academics and activists should have access to, you know, agricultural spaces or spaces of animal use. And um, what I found in, in my research that I talk about you know, more at length in the book is that I had originally thought, oh, I'll just go and get a job in, uh, you know, on a dairy farm, 
in a sort of undercover capacity the way that um, if you've read uh, Timothy Patrat's every 12 um, every 12 seconds uh, the way he did in us in a Nebraska slaughterhouse and um, what I found was that I went, when I went to the ethics review board at the university which is a committee that has to approve all um, research involving human subjects or animal subjects uh, they were like absolutely not we're not going to approve that kind of deception that would be required to go undercover um, you know in your research so um, so I had to sort of reformulate um, how I was going to do the do the research from the get-go and I started by you know contacting farms and just saying I'm a, you know I'm an academic researcher I'd like to come and see you know the process of producing dairy and I contacted large-scale farms and I contacted lots of small-scale family farms um, in the Puget Sound region here in Washington throughout Oregon um, and in Northern California and what I found was that these farms were um, totally unwilling to have me come and, and visit. And I would go to the farmer's markets in the area and talk to the farmers um, or, you know, their sales representatives at the farmer's markets and they'd be super friendly and like, oh yeah, come on out. And then when I called later, they, you know, they made up all kinds of excuses for why I couldn't come and see what was going on at the farm. And that was actually really surprising to me, especially on the small scale um, end of things, because I was anticipating the industrial scale spaces to um, to be, you know, closed um, and not willing to to give me access because of what I'd, you know, heard about this culture around, you know, ag-gag laws and preventing people from um, from coming in and and documenting what was happening in farms. But the the small scale farms did surprise me. So I I was able to find one farm that that let me come um, a 500 cow dairy farm, um, which is considered sort of mid mid scale, and um, and, but then I, you know, you can't just do a dissertation or write a book on, you know, based on one farm. So I had to figure out how to access, you know, different spaces and found that auction yards, um, farmed animal auction yards are open to the public. And so I spent, ended up spending a lot of time there um, in various auction yards um, watching for the dairy sales, um, watching the, the cows come through uh, the ring. And then... Um, and then I went to the World Dairy Expo, which is an international trade show in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and went to the Washington State Fair and just sort of reconfigured the project to be um, to to use public more publicly accessible spaces, because I think the question of access um I mean, it's it's tricky because on on one hand, you want to have access. I mean, I think it's important to have access to these spaces to know what's going on, in you know, in farms and in private, um, you know, private businesses that are raising animals uh, for food. On the other hand, you can get you know quite a lot of information from about those spaces from public spaces. So you can see, you know, the condition of cows coming through the auction yard from these farms. Um, so I think that, um, I mean, I think it was an, in, it posed an interesting problem um, re research wise. Um, and also more generally, I think for activists in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of just finding out what's going on. Um, and I think that, you know, making use of these spaces that are, that are open to the public is one way of sort of shedding light on, on what's going on in a sort of increasingly 
you know, suspicious and, and closed off set of industries. Well, you did a beautiful job and, and something I want to really emphasize to the listeners, even though we're talking about your academic background and that, this book reads like a novel. You start out talking about Sadie, a, a wonderful cow at an animal sanctuary, and you, you write like a fiction writer. And, and I wish that the story of the life of, of the dairy cow was fiction. Unfortunately, it's not, but it's, it's a gripping, gripping book. So everybody, please, please do check it out. You have something on page 18, which I just couldn't take my eyes off of. And it, it's a chart. I think you call this a flow chart. I'm not sure. But it's the bovine life cycle. And to just get an understanding of these animals who are supposed to live 20 years or somewhat longer, but whose lives are zero to seven years. What happens to the females? What happens to the males? Where they go? I, I just tell us about that. Yeah, so, um, so if a cow is born female in the dairy industry, um, she's likely to be raised up for dairy production. Um, and usually um, ca calves are raised separately um, in the, what are, what the industry terms calf hutches, which look like those little dog plastic sort of dog igloo things. Um, and so they, they raise them uh, separately in those um, for fear of Contam um, contamination and spread of disease. So when they're young, they're they're isolated, um, you know, in like one calf per hutch, um, and they do that with calves um, being raised for veal as well. Um, and then when the females get to be a little bit older, then they can be um, they're they're moved into groups um, and are raised up in groups so that they get good at socializing again but they're removed from uh, you know when a calf is born uh, male or female they're removed often within um, a few hours of birth um, the farmer that I talked to um, said that you know it was really better to remove them sooner because the longer that they're allowed to stay with their mother um, the more attached they become and the more traumatic a separation it is for both and he said as it was um, removing them within a few hours, the calves, um, or the, sorry, the cows will bellow for their calves for up to two weeks. And um, so the, the, there's this traumatic separation that occurs, um, you know, for both male and females. Um, then the females are raised up into, into dairy production. Um, they, when they join the, they're usually um, artificially inseminated, which is the primary mode of reproduction um, at around uh, 15 months. And their gestation period is nine months like humans. So they will give birth for the first time in around two years. And, um, and then they're artificially inseminated and impregnated um, once a year, every year after that, and give birth to a calf. And they're usually milked about 300 days out of every year. Um, so uh, that's a very intensive process. It's hard on the body. Um, usually cows are sort of deemed spent um, with by the industry by, um, you know, four to seven years, maybe three years old, um, depending. And then they're sent to um, either auction or um, or directly to slaughter for usually for ground beef because their bodies are so worn out. Um, male calves are raised in the dairy industry or who are born into the dairy industry um, are usually 
a lot of them are raised for veal. So um, raised for, you know, maybe four to six months um, in, again, in isolation and, confi and the, confined in these, to these hutches um, and then are, are slaughtered for veal. But increasingly, like there's, you know, not a huge market for veal. So a lot of the cat and the calves, the male calves are worth so little that it's often um, more economical to just kill them on the farm um, and, you know, compost them or dispose of their bodies in some way. Or, um, or uh, sometimes they're, they're slaughtered at birth. Um, and that's called bob veal, which is a um, lower quality um, version of veal that they can, they just slaughter the calves um, very early. So, um, so the male calves are, um, you know, have a, a very short life either way. Um, a few male calves are, um, you know, from sort of exceptional genetic stock are, uh, are raised for breeding and they're raised on separate breeding farms for semen production. Um, and that's a whole process I describe um, in the book as well that doesn't get talked about that often, but, you know, where the, where the semen for, artificial in, for the artificial insemination um, comes from, comes from bulls who are uh, raised um, on, on separate farms. Yeah. Well, you talk about a lot of things in this book that um, aren't talked about elsewhere. The cow with ear tag number 1389, Catherine Gillespie. Catherine, just in our last couple of minutes, from where you sit, having been on the inside of this industry to an extent, how far along are we? What's the hope that we'll see a world where dairy products are not consumed? I actually feel pretty hopeful about that. I think that the... Um, the you know, um, sort of mark, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know that the sort of market share of plant-based milks is, you know, bigger than it's ever been. I think that, um, I think people are um, interested in non, like non-dairy alternatives for all kinds of reasons um, that get, you know, consumers away from consuming um, cow's milk. And, uh, and I, so I think that there's an, a sort of openness to, to veganism um, that I've, you know, that more more so than I've ever seen in you know my lifetime, um, and I also think that the you know especially the environmental impacts of the dairy industry and meat industries um, are really sort of coming into the in public consciousness in a way that could dramatically shift consumers away from supporting the the dairy industry and meat industries. So I'm pretty hopeful, actually. That's exciting. You make me hopeful too. Great. <laughs> Publishers Weekly says about this book, Gillespie vividly describes the deleterious effects of long-term dairy production on the animals themselves as demonstrated by the titular cow. She succeeds in ensuring her readers will never look at a glass of milk in quite the same way again. So God bless you for doing that. <laughs> I think it's Thank so, you. so very important. So everybody, um, get a hold of this book. Just go check it out, read it cover to cover. And you know, sometimes we say, how do we answer all these questions that we hear from our meat eating or, or dairy drinking friends? Read this book, you'll be able to answer those questions. Stay with us, there's more after this. 
We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. This programming is made possible through the generous donations of listeners like you. If you feel inspired by this programming, we invite you to contribute. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate to make your offering today. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with sound healer Terry Wilder and Mystical Gong Meditations. Stop for a minute and take a breath. Ram Dass is quoted as saying, Remember, the quieter you become, the more you can hear. Take a minute for yourself and just breathe. Give yourself this minute of meditation. Prayer is talking to the universe. Meditation is listening to it. Just breathe. To hear more healing gong meditations, visit terrywilder.com. Now's the time to register for this year's Heart of Healing Retreat, hosted by the leaders of the Silent Unity Prayer Ministry. Imagine coming to the beautiful campus of Unity Village with its fountains and rose garden to rest and renew your spirit as you explore the spiritual principles of healing. You'll spend time in silence as well as celebration. The retreat is April 25th to 28th with an early bird discount before March 1st. Visit unity.org slash silentunityretreat. Did you know Unity has published a new book by Eric Butterworth? This wonderful writer and teacher, who is loved by so many people, left a recorded class called Practical Metaphysics that has now been turned into a book. It's Vintage Butterworth. He explains how to live from a deeper state of consciousness and awaken to health, love, prosperity, and peace of mind. Practical Metaphysics. Find it online by going to unity.org and click shop. Discover how to connect with our loved ones on the other side with Suzanne Giesman and Messages of Hope. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Central as Suzanne shares evidence that love never dies. An evidential medium, spiritual teacher, and author, Suzanne brings hope and healing through her gift of communication with those who have passed. Suzanne brings messages of hope and love that go straight to the heart. Tune in this Thursday right here on Unity Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. A couple of little pieces of news from around here. If you listen regularly, you know already 
that I am the producer for Thomas Jackson's beautiful documentary, A Prayer for Compassion. And it is going to have its official world premiere in New York City on March 5th. And oh my goodness, we are over the moon. Our VIP uh, tickets for the reception before the screening uh, have sold out. We still have a few. I mean, we're talking double digits um, tickets remaining for um, the screening itself. You can go to tinyurl.com slash compassion film if you would like to attend that premiere in New York on Tuesday, March the 5th. We're going to have another screening in Denver on March the 10th. So you can just Google a prayer for compassion Denver and get all that information. And if you want to host a screening in your very own area, you can go to a prayer for You got to put the A in there. And there's information about hosting a screening either in a theater. Uh, we're involved with a company called Tug that can make that easy for you. Or if you want to do it in a church or a library or something of that nature, we will work with you to make sure you can do that and make it easy and successful and meaningful. This is a film to introduce vegan living to people who identify as religious or spiritual. I want to do a shout out to our sponsor, the good people of Compliment. That's a convenient spray that gives you the B12, D3, and fully formed omega-3 fatty acids, DHA, and EPA that vegans and other people who care about their health need to be looking at. And you can get that at alpineorganics.co or just go there and get more information. If you do decide that you want some compliment of your very own, just put Main Street Vegan in all caps in the discount box and you will get yourself 10% off. So thanks to the good people of Alpine Organics. Well, speaking of good people, I have another guest who is so committed. This man does not stop. And I am am just a fan from afar. And he is Mark Hawthorne, an activist and author of three books on animal rights and social justice, A Vegan Ethic, Embracing a Life of Compassion Toward All, Bleating Hearts, The Hidden World of Animal Suffering, and the best-selling Striking at the Roots, A Practical Guide to Animal Activism, which has just been updated as a 10th anniversary edition. And as I said earlier, we're going to be giving away a free copy of that brand new edition, as well as a copy of uh, Catherine Gillespie's book that we were talking about in the first half hour on the Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners Facebook group. So you just go there, join up, uh, send us a vegan meme, and uh, maybe you'll win one of these terrific books. Mark is a frequent contributor to Veg News Magazine. He volunteers with the Vegan Food Justice Group, the Food Empowerment Project. And you'll find him blogging about activism at markhawthorne.com and tweeting at Mark Hawthorne. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's wonderful always to have you. You know, there's some people that every time I talk to them, I become a little bit better of a person. And you're one of those. So thank you. Thank you for being a a guru of sorts. It it means a lot. So when you wrote the first edition of Striking at the Roots, what was the motivation for doing that? Uh, I went vegan in 2001. 
And at that time, I decided I wanted to speak up for animals, but I could not find many resources on exactly how to do that. I found you know, bits of advice from a couple of the big animal rights groups, but nothing that was really, I guess, in depth. Uh, nothing that addressed the pros and cons of the major models of activism, for example. So when my eventual publisher, uh, Changemakers, first approached me about writing a book, I thought maybe a guide to animal activism would be a good idea. I had been writing for Veg News and Satya magazines, and by, uh, I guess, around 2008, I had some good experience and a lot of connections in the movement, so the first edition came together pretty quickly. And then a 10th anniversary edition. Why are we doing this? Well, uh, after 10 years, just like anything that goes by 10 years, things change. And a lot had changed in the movement. A lot, have, uh, a lot has changed in how activists reach the public. And so I approached the editor, or excuse me, the uh, publisher about doing a 10th anniversary edition about, I guess, three or four years ago. And they said, that's, that's a great idea. We're totally behind it. So I expanded the book with uh, about 100 more pages than the first edition and spent a lot of time on the chapter on self-care, which is at the end of the book. So there's a lot more in there about compassion fatigue and burnout and uh, living with non-vegans and dealing with family and friends and body shaming, uh, the, the Me Too movement, racism. And... Throughout the book, there's more about social media activism, about protecting yourself at protests, both from surveillance and uh, physical harm. Uh, there's information about prisoner support, you know, supporting uh, activists who have gone to prison, uh, virtual reality. There's information about grand juries. There's just so much more, and I'm I'm so proud of it. Well, I'm, I'm and you should be. So, give me a definition, your definition of activist. Well, to me, activism is compassion and action. And anybody who is speaking up for an oppressed group or for uh, a cause they believe in, uh, I believe, is an activist. And they don't necessarily have to be out there protesting. They don't have to be uh, out there doing something even in the public. They can just be doing something behind the scenes, like writing letters to editors or going to a dining hall at their campus or approaching a restaurant and asking them to, you know, carry more vegan options. So uh, it's really anybody, I think, out there who's trying to make a difference. And yet, why is it a scary word to so many people? I'll hear people say, well, I'm not an activist. I mean, I I'm an advocate or, or something else. So what is it about activism that makes people nervous? Yeah, that's a great question. A few years ago, there was a lot of commentary in our movement about whether or not we should be even using the word activist because it is a loaded word. And some people in our movement said, we should really just call ourselves animal advocates because activist sounds kind of scary, as you said. And I think it's just one of those words that people associate with perhaps actions that are theatrical or offensive. You know, there are certain groups out there who are known for that type of thing. And even outside the animal rights movement, activism can be seen as very confrontational. Uh, you, you know, you've got people screaming at other people or, you know, doing something very overt that somebody else who might be an introvert would say, oh, I not only would I not want to be involved with that, I don't even want to see that. 
So I, I don't find anything wrong with the term activist. I think it's a very powerful word because it's got action in it. And, you know, I love words. So for me, it has deep meaning. But I can understand why people want to avoid that word, too. Well, let me ask you further just about the whole kind of um, activism world, the animal charity world. I'm hearing a few people, not large numbers, but more than one, so it kind of piques my interest, who are just saying it, it moves so slow in the nonprofit world. So I'm going to put my energy into the business side. I'm going to be working with these companies that are coming up with innovative products to change the world for animals. I know there's a place for both. So where do you come down on that? Well, I totally see what you're saying. There's, you know, we're seeing a huge jump in the number of vegan products that are available now in the marketplace. And that's clearly not for vegan people like you and I. It's clearly for the people who want to consider themselves healthier or plant-based or just want to uh, maybe for uh, maybe for animal welfare reasons eat less meat or for another reason. So I, I, I can see both sides of it. I'm very much a, a, a vegan for the animals, but I'm also a realist. I understand that the growth that we're seeing is not because of people like me. It's because uh, there's a demand, especially from young people who want to eat healthier or they want to uh, you know, have more options that are um, better for the planet. You know, uh, you know, from, so from an environmental standpoint, they want to eat more vegan or they want to eat more plant-based. So, and I, I have absolutely no problem with that. I think that's wonderful. But at the end of the day, I'm an activist and uh, I'm a vegan for the animals. And so that's what I promote. Yeah. Last night, my husband met one of his business friends that he's known forever. The man happens to be from France. And so they, they went to a burger place that has the impossible burger and, and they both ate it, even though um, his friend is, is not vegan or vegetarian. And as they chatted, and William mentioned that we have here in New York City a French vegan restaurant, Delice and Saracen, where all of these traditional French dishes have, have been veganized. And so Olivier said, well, we have to go there tomorrow night. <laughs> so we're, we're going to this place. And I, I was telling someone, I think, you know, if you convert a, a French person, you probably get extra credit. But it's fascinating to me how people can be enticed into at least trying the food. And that can be a wonderful first step for many. Yes, I agree. So I love your book and I love the cover. And there are these different kind of portraits. We're seeing kind of half faces of various beings. And then when you turn the book over to see these wonderful endorsements that you have from Carol J. Adams, Captain Paul Watson, Ingrid Newkirk. There's this portrait of a fish. And I'm so glad that you have him or her there because that's a group that often is not included. Can you just say something about fish? I really became interested in the life of fishes when I wrote my second book, Bleeding Hearts, because I wanted that book to focus on animals and animal exploitation that do not get a lot of mainstream media attention. And the more I looked at fishes, the more I realized that, you know, we have such little understanding of them that 
it's almost like they need an extra voice. You know, they need a little bit more advocacy. Um, my wife, Lauren Ornelas, who runs Food Empowerment Project, is a, especially a, a huge advocate of fishes and, and, and sea creatures in general. And uh, I, I learned a lot from her uh, about you know, uh, beings like sharks and, and octopuses and other creatures that we, you know, they live under the ocean. It's almost like they're aliens. You know, they don't have expressions on their faces that are easily readable by us. They don't vocalize in ways that we understand. So I think that, as I said, we need to give them a little bit of extra attention. Well, I think we do too. And I, I love how democratic you are about this whole thing. Everybody gets included. So Mark, what are your recommendations for activists to get started? Uh, well, I think that we all need to start from a place of knowledge. So I recommend activists get an education on the issues. Uh, we have to know what's happening to animals before we can advocate for them. So, and I'm not suggesting that we have to have all the answers, but we need to have an understanding of what the animals are going through. And then consider your strengths. Do you enjoy interacting with the public? Then maybe you'd like tabling or leafleting. Uh, are you especially outgoing? If you are, then you might want to participate in protests or even do a podcast. Um, if you're a good writer, then you know, by all means, write letters to editors or even start a blog. So and even if you're an introvert, and I consider myself an introvert, uh, you can share vegan food with family and friends or ask a campus dining hall or local restaurant to offer more vegan options or contact companies that sell products tested on animals and ask them to stop. And, and a lot of people get their feet wet just by volunteering at a shelter or a sanctuary. And that takes such a big heart and, and so much strength. I mean, one of the things that I'm seeing now that I'm part of, of this beautiful film, and it does have some snips, some two-second clips of some of the things that we do to animals. And so many people say, oh, I'm not going to watch the 90 minutes of beauty and uplift because, you know, there's that six or seven minutes of, of these things that we just don't want to look at. And I always figure, well, if you're vegan, okay, you get a pass. But for somebody who's not vegan, can't you at least look? Why is it so hard to look? Well, I, I, you know, from both sides of it, from the vegan side, it's very hard to look because in many ways we already know what's happening. And because of that, we are being active for animals. You know, we, we're very sensitive people. And for a lot of us, that's one reason that we gave up eating animals. For the majority of the public, there's that cognitive dissonance. They enjoy consuming animals, but they don't want to know how that meat or eggs or that dairy product reached their plate. So you know, when I was vegetarian, before I was actually vegan, I didn't want to hear about how dairy and eggs were produced because I, my, my sensitive side already understood there's probably something wrong with this, which is why I gave up eating, eating meat. But I didn't want to know. And it wasn't until I actually got deeper into it and went to a sanctuary for farmed animals and learned their stories, learned about cows who were rescued from dairies and met chickens who had been rescued from egg farms that I decided I just don't need this anymore. So I think it's, it's just a lot of fear. You know, we just, we, we are entrenched in our habits and we don't want to change. 
and we don't want to feel that we are participating in anything as egregious as animal suffering. We like to think of ourselves as good people. Uh, so we like to just maintain those habits. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to break out of that. Well, what a beautiful answer, and particularly that you alluded back to an earlier time in your own life, because I think sometimes when we hear from people who are just covering all the bases, and I know you don't stop at animal rights and animal ethics. I mean, you're very much involved in living in a sustainable way environmentally, in in respecting human rights in every possible way that those can be respected. And I think sometimes people who are just opening up to some of these things are in awe. It's like, well, okay, that's good for you, but you're Gandhi. (laughs) And I'm just me. And that reminder that, you know, we all started somewhere and you were once a vegetarian and, and very few of us were born vegan. So thank you for that. So you've made a note here on uh, this information that you sent to me where you talk about a model of activism that you believe is misunderstood or underutilized. What is that? Well, that's protesting. It's, you know, going back to that word activist or activism that we talked about, it's one of those loaded terms. And I think a lot of activists have a uh, preconceived notion about what protesting is, and they feel it has to be some big display of, you know, 100 activists Uh, engaged in something theatrical for it to make a difference. And in my experience, that's not the case. And and one of the examples that I give in the book is, you know, we have a group out here in California called Santa Clara County, Santa Clara County Activists for Animals. And they managed to get a restaurant to stop selling foie gras. And they only had a few people from their group at each protest. Uh, It's just the key was consistency. They were out there every week. And they escalated it. You know, they started off very low key uh, and eventually brought out uh, signage and were leafleting and at that point had direct contact with the management. And the management realized, you know, these two or three activists are going to be out here every Friday or every Saturday and they're not going to give up. And so that that made the difference. And I think that there's a lot of models of activism that are probably misunderstood. But to me, that's the biggest one. And that could be very, very effective. And that's interesting that when you said protest, I immediately thought of a great big march with signs and TV cameras. But you're talking about something much more low key, but it gets the job done. Exactly. And that's a protest. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have yeah. to be a big march. Yeah. Cool. Well, you mentioned earlier that you were really jazzed about the new chapter that you've added to the book, Animal Care, Activists Are Animals Too. And that was a great chapter for me. And I do want to read the quotation with which you start that chapter. It comes from Audre Lorde, who said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Oh, my goodness, that needs to be taped to a lot of refrigerators and bathroom mirrors. So tell us about this chapter. (laughs) Well, compassion fatigue and burnout are very serious, and so I uh, devote an entire chapter to it. Uh, There's a lot of activists who feel that they have to keep pushing themselves. They say, oh, the animals have it worse, and they put themselves through tremendous pressure. And it's critical we take a break and find ways to take care of ourselves. 
and I mean physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, or we're not going to be able to help anyone. So burnout and compassion fatigue are slightly different. Burnout is characterized by three main components. There's emotional exhaustion. There's depersonalization where you feel, you're feeling uh, like detached or disconnected from your body. And then there's a sense that you're not accomplishing anything. And it's that lack of personal accomplishment, whether that is real or imagined, that is very important here. Um, and I should clarify that someone in any profession can suffer burnout. So teachers, mechanics, plumbers, librarians, anybody can suffer from, from on-the-job burnout. But compassion fatigue is often described as the emotional drain experienced by caregivers of both people and animals. And, you know, it's the people who are the most sensitive, like activists and EMTs and veterinarians and others who are going to suffer from that the most. So, you know, we really need to be aware of that and we need to watch out for the signs. Um, you know, signs of burnout might be anger or frustration or, or lashing out at people and signs of compassion fatigue could include grief or, or sadness or nightmares or a loss of appetite or uh, feeling isolated. And so it's, it's important that we do things that, that uh, are important to us outside the movement, um, that we, we take the time to uh, enjoy our family and friends and to not spend all of our time focused on uh, just the work at hand, just the activism, just the, because it's very sad. You know? And I, you know, you mentioned earlier images that are hard to look at in videos. There's a lot of activists who feel that they owe it to the animals to do that, that they have to watch those uh, those videos, those documentaries. And I, I say you do not owe it to anybody. You owe it to yourself to take care of yourself. And if you want to stay in the movement long term, then and that's going to upset you and perhaps lead to uh, burnout, then you absolutely don't need to be watching those things. You're right. I, it, it's just so important that people value themselves because there aren't that many of us. There aren't that many people who really care about animals. And you've done something wonderful. You've come up with an acronym for the word active, tips for avoiding burnout. I'm a big fan of uh, acronyms, so I'm going to read this one. A is allow yourself to be human. C, create something tangible to remind you of your victories, a file or scrapbook of your activist achievements. Talk to someone you trust. Ignore graphic sights and sounds, which can trigger depression, nightmares, and physical illness. Visit an animal sanctuary, better yet, volunteer. And E, finally, exercise regularly, which seems to get in every list <laughs> for taking care of oneself. Um, but those are really practical and, and powerful things to do. So thank you for that. Yeah, and I'd like to just add to that, too. I know that not everybody has the ability to exercise, and I just want to say that anything that you can do, whether it's stretching or just getting out for a walk, I'm not talking about you know, being a marathon runner or joining a gym necessarily and going five days a week. Just anything that you can do physically for yourself is what I'm talking about. Sounds good. So what was the biggest challenge that, that you faced writing this book? I, I know books always bring <laughs> their own challenges, and each one has, has kind of some special ones. So how about this one for you? Uh, well, my main concern was to write a book that would be useful to the, the widest possible audience. 
Uh, although the vegan animal, animal rights audience is large, not a lot of not a large percentage of these people consider themselves to be activists. So, I wanted to create something that not only appealed to those who already consider themselves activists, but also inspired people who uh, didn't know how to get started or may think activism is not for them. Well, you've done a great job. And even as some of the reviews that you, you had of the book talk about that this is actually a guide for anybody who has a cause. It doesn't necessarily have to be animals. And I think that's very cool because anybody who reads this book is going to get the message for animals, even if they take the practical suggestions into their other good work that they're doing elsewhere. And heaven knows there's plenty of good work that needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. You, just about any social justice movement can use the suggestions here. Terrific. So he is at Mark Hawthorne, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E, on Twitter, and his blog is markhawthorne.com. This particular book is Striking at the Roots, 10th Anniversary Edition, New Tactics, New Technology. And Mark... You've really done it here. <laughs> this is truly a guide. So anybody out there, if you're feeling like, gosh, I'm just alone in my area. I'm the only vegan I know. Nobody thinks about animals. What can I do? Well, just get a hold of this book and it will really answer your questions and get you in that activism game to the degree that you are willing and ready to partake in that and do some amazing good in the world for those who really need some help. So thank you, Mark, and all the best to you and your wonderful wife, Lauren, who's doing such great work as well. So listeners, for February, we have talked about love. And as we go on into March, we're going to talk about heroes. So please be sure and be part of the program next month. And in the meantime, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.